open your Bible, if you would, to Matthew 15. If I didn't have the privilege to meet you by the front door today, my name is Ken. You probably can't read my name tag, but my name is Ken. I serve as one of the pastors here, and it is a joy to look to God's Word. We're continuing our series entitled A King Like No Other as we work our way through the book of Matthew together. So one of our kids recently had a birthday and got for his birthday a microscope. We've got a young scientist in the home. And I mean, it is, a, and it is, it is an amazing thing. He loves it and I love it. So when you buy a, a microscope, it, it comes with little pre-made slides of interesting things that you can look at, different cells and whatever. Well, one of the slides it came with was the leg from a fly. Now, up to this point in my life, I have to confess, I haven't given a whole lot of thought to fly legs. <laughs> never, never really considered them. But when we put that tiny little leg, you can barely see it, you know, with your eye, you put it under the microscope, there is just a world of intricacy. It is remarkable. The tiny joints and ligaments, the little feet that are shaped like hooks to grab on to things, and then the hairs all over the Did you know that flies had hairy legs? <laughs> they do. Let me tell you. Now, you can learn a lot by looking at things close up. And I learned a ton that I didn't know about fly legs. But if you were to just simply look in that microscope without knowing the big picture, you wouldn't have any idea what you were looking at. What is this alien specimen? Looks like a kind of a prop to some science fiction horror movie or something, you know, just these deadly looking hooks and all of this. It's, it's, it's bizarre and alien and confusing if you don't have the big picture to go along with the, the small picture. Well, this morning, as we look to a section in Matthew 15, that is very much the truth. We're approaching a passage that many, and I would say most Christians in our day, find uncomfortable. Jesus surprises us deeply, and what he says sounds so offensive that we can wonder what in the world is, is going on. If we just jump in and zoom in on this, it looks alien and confusing and perplexing. But I think if we're willing to step back and to consider the big picture that is around this, the, the, the context around this particular passage, we're going to see that the passage has much to say to us, a, a, a significant correction and a significant encouragement as well. So with that in mind, I want us to read together one paragraph uh, Matthew 15, we'll begin in verse 21 and go down to verse 28 together. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away. 
She is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. God's word, let's pray. Lord, we we ask that as we consider this this morning, that you would be at work within us. That where we might be quick to be offended by some of what we see, Lord, give us, give us understanding of what's going on. Lord, help us to submit to your word what it would say about us. And hear the correction and the encouragement that you have for us in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so before we get out the microscope and look closely at the passage, I want to back up and make sure we understand the specimen. What is it that we're, we're looking at? And there's really two pieces we need to understand. One is historical and the other is geographic. All right, so let's back up and understand the, the history of what's going on. Historically, right now, we are under, the people of God are under the old covenant. Remember, there are two covenants, Right? the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. They're under the Old Covenant. Sometimes you could replace the word covenant with testament. They're under the Old Testament. Now that's weird because we're reading the New Testament, right? But we haven't historically gotten to the point where Jesus inaugurates the New Testament yet. He'll do that when he dies. In fact, that's coming in a matter of weeks but they're still under the Old Covenant. This was the covenant that God made with Abraham 2,000 years prior when he called him out from worshiping idols. And he said, he said I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you. I'm going to bless your offspring. And those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. I will be with you and I'll give you many, many offspring. He made this covenant with Abraham. And then he confirmed that covenant with Abraham's son, Isaac. And then he confirmed that covenant again with Isaac's son, Jacob, renaming Jacob Israel. Then Jacob had 12 sons who more or less became the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God, the people of the covenant. Well, those tribes found themselves in Egypt as slaves in Egypt, and God kept his covenant promises and worked on their behalf and led them out in the Exodus, out of Egypt, and told them, go take the promised land, the land of Canaan. Now, at the time, the land of Canaan was not empty. It had, surprisingly, Canaanites living in the land of Canaan. But the Lord had been watching them for 400 years as their evil and wickedness increased and increased and increased. And he told his people to kill the Canaanites as a unique... uh, display of his judgment over their sin. So God's people go into the land of Canaan, the promised land. They take it, but they didn't obey God. They didn't kill all of the Canaanites. And so they still exist, and so they still live there. Okay, so we're still under that covenant that has been going on for 2,000 years. We've got like weeks left in it. 
but God's still keeping it. Okay, now that's, that's one of our two back up and see is the historic. The other is the geographic reality. Verse 21 says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, you might even have a map at the back of your Bible that would give you some feel for the geography here, but Tyre and Sidon are up on the Mediterranean Sea on the coast. And so this is the furthest kind of north uh, west that you can get in the land of Israel. In fact, this is the furthest that Jesus will get away from the center of Israel, Jerusalem, in the whole book of Matthew. This will be the only time he heads into Gentile territory, non-Jewish territory, in the entire book of Matthew. So Jesus is, if you want to make a little comparison, he's like on an orbit right now, and he's at the farthest point of that orbit, like, I don't know, Halley's Comet, right? Goes around the sun every 75 years, and he's at like the furthest point out before he begins his return trip back to the son of Jerusalem. Now, this, this little geography lesson is important because once he makes that turn, he's heading to Jerusalem. He's heading to the city that kills the prophets, that would kill him. And he would head there to inaugurate the new covenant. Isn't that what he said in the Last Supper? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, right? So he's about to turn his face towards Jerusalem, but he hasn't quite done that yet. He's still keeping the old covenant. He's still there caring for the people of God as Yahweh has done for 2,000 years. Okay, now we've got our background. Now we can get out of our microscope and take a look at what this passage is saying. Look with me at verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So this, this woman comes out, and it shouldn't surprise us that a Gentile woman would come out to Jesus. He's in Gentile territory. The majority of people that live there are Gentiles. But notice, Matthew doesn't call her a Gentile, though she is one. He points out her ethnicity. She's a Canaanite. She is one of those people that God had said uh, 1,000 years ago to kill because of their sin. For 1,000 years, there's been a conflict between the Jewish people, the people of God, and the Canaanites. In other words, she's a member of the enemy of the people of God. That's That's the people group that she is a part of. Matthew draws our attention to it. Now, she comes to Jesus because her daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And we don't know any more than that, but severely is a big word. Frequently, this would involve physical sickness and perhaps uncontrollable thoughts and words and actions. And she is distraught for her daughter. So she says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now, now here's this Canaanite woman that calls him the son of David. Now, David is the king of the Jews, the people of God, the Israelites. And she's saying, you're his heir, aren't you? You're the son of David. You're the the heir to the throne in, in Jerusalem. Now, here's the problem. How should... 
the son of David, how should David, how should the king treat the enemies of God's people? What exactly is his role? Historically, his role has been to fight the enemies of God's people. Jesus remained silent at her request. No answer. It says he answered her not a word. But she didn't stop talking. She got more and more persistent, louder and louder. She's apparently following them around to the point that the disciples get annoyed and tell Jesus to try to get rid of her. Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And so this brings Jesus' first verbal response. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I think we needed that historical background to understand what he's saying here. He's saying, there's a people group that I was sent to. It's the people of God. It's been this way for 2,000 years. We've got a few weeks left on this one. But God is going to keep his promise to them. And I was sent to do that. And do that I must. This is, this is my mission. And not just this is the mission, but I was sent. I'm not just out here wandering around, doing my thing, making this up as I go. No. My father tells me what to do. This is what he gave me to do. And I must do this. This is a massive problem for this woman. This gives her an insurmountable, two insurmountable problems in, in his one statement. Number one, she's not a Jew. She's not a member of the people of God. And she can't change that. She is outside the covenant with Abraham. She can't change her origin, her ethnicity, and become one of them all of a sudden. It's insurmountable. The second is that she can't change the mission he's on. What can she do when God gave him the mission and sent Christ to the lost sheep of Israel? So she could not change her origin. She could not change her, his mission, but she could pray. And so pray she does in verse 25. She came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Now, she does not get the response we think she would get. Verse 26, and he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Few words of Jesus are more offensive to modern ears than these. They're, they're difficult to understand. He is setting up an analogy or a comparison, and she's not at the good end of that comparison. Now, he's not just straight up calling her a dog in that kind of demeaning way. However, he is, he is helping her see where she fits in the storyline. The people of God are the, the children at the table that God has put there by his plan for 2,000 years. And they're hungry. And he was sent to them. He said, I'm the bread of life, and I've come... In, in order to feed the children of God what they need. And there's a lot of them, and they're hungry right now, and I've got to be about doing this right now. To them I was sent. You have no right to ask this. You have no right to ask this of me. You have no inherent place 
at the table. You have no claim upon God nor upon me. If anything, you're seeking to cut in line. There's a line, and it's long, and they need me, and I was sent to them. How can you put yourself before them? Now, if Jesus' words were surprising, so were hers. Verse 27, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Yes, Lord, you're right. I have no claim on you. I have no right to ask this of you. I don't deserve to sit at the table. I should not cut in front of anyone, nor distract you from your mission. But Lord, you just set up an analogy between me and the children. I'm going to change that a little bit. The analogy is not so much between me and them, but between me and you. You say I'm a dog under your table. You're the kind of Lord that doesn't send even the dogs away hungry. What kind of faith is this? That she would see Christ be so put in her place and just say, yes, you're right, but, but you. You are a good master, Lord, and you provide for the kids and the animals under the table. What precious, beautiful, profound, strong faith this woman has. And Jesus responds immediately to it in verse 28. Jesus answered her, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Friends, I, I hope that now as we see the background, we've been able to understand what Jesus is saying and and perhaps not be offended by what he is saying. But if we've stopped being offended by the passage, let's allow for a minute, as it were, the passage to be offended by us. Because that's the way this is supposed to work, is that the word examines us. And this passage offers the strongest correction to any who would come to God thinking he owes them anything at all. Now, hers was a unique historic context, right? She was out, literally outside the people of God. But hers is not so unique, friend. No one can approach God thinking they have a claim of anything good upon him. There is no one who deserves a seat at his table. None can approach him and, and say, God has wronged me or, or God must hear my case. There's not a soul on planet earth whom God owes a thing. Save the justice due for their sin. No one can claim to be of the right race, the right class, the right ethnicity, the, of the right nation, of the right family. Kids in here, don't think that you that God will receive you because you've been raised in church. 
Don't think that he's going to have to take you because you've done some good thing, or your dad is the pastor, or your mom is the godliest of women. No one has a claim on God. God owes you nothing but justice. And mercy, when it comes, is never deserved. That's why it's mercy. Never deserved. So the passage would correct any who would come to God in their human pride and say, don't come to God in your pride, but rather come to Jesus humbly. Come to Jesus humbly. I believe this is the first of two great applications out of this, that we would come to Jesus in humility. If, friend, if you've never turned to Christ, come to him humbly. Come to him aware of your need, of your sin. Come to him as though you're coming to God, for you are. And come asking for mercy, which you could never demand. Even taking the posture of this woman who knelt before him and said simply, Lord, help me. And make that your prayer. Lord, help me. But I'm speaking also to those who know Christ, who've walked with Christ, who know something of a relationship with Christ, of praying with him and walking with him. And I would just say, dear friend, don't lose your humility before your God. After all these years, you have not earned his mercy. After all these years, you stand only on grace alone. Forget not that the God who forgives you and loves you and cherishes you is also the God who is a consuming fire. Humility should be the only clothing we put on, the only clothing we wear, friends. What other garment could we possibly dare to put on before him? So this passage humbles human pride to the dust. We are all this woman before the Lord, ill-deserving any good. And yet the passage teaches us not just to come to Christ humbly, but to come to Christ hopefully. To come to Christ hopefully. Do you see how the woman asked over and over and over and over? She had hope that he would turn to her. How she cried out and endured and knelt and pleaded and nearly argued with God. She mixed the deepest humility and the strongest hope in her approach to Christ. Friend, that's the way to come to Jesus right there. The deepest humility and the strongest hope. You should have this hope in Christ. You should have this hope in Christ. Not because you deserve to have this in some twisted way, but because this Jesus hasn't changed. He's still the same one that we see here. Let us approach him with deep hope, with hope that's seen the gospel and believes the gospel. Says, yes, I'm a sinner, yet you died for me. 
And so in you I place my hope and my trust. This is gospel-founded, Christ-exalting hope. It says, yes, I'm a sinner, but it is finished. My sin is vanquished. I will come boldly before the throne of grace. I will raise my voice in prayer and call aloud with my needs, and my Jesus will hear me. Not because I have a claim on him, but he has a claim on me. Not because I have a right to his table, but he set me there anyway. Not because I don't deserve judgment, but because he took all of my judgment. I am a sinner full of hope because I have a Savior full of mercy. Full. Full, full of mercy. I am full of sin, but I am full of hope because I have a Savior full of mercy. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those who have never perhaps placed their trust in you who are here this morning. I pray that you would work, revealing to them their need, that they would not walk out thinking that they don't need you, that you would open their eyes to see their need, and then open their eyes to see their Savior. And Lord, as we talked about having such hope in you, I pray that you would give birth to this within us this God-exalting hope that though we see our sin, we see our Savior, and we know that your mercy is more, more, more. So thank you for being our God of living hope. Cause that hope to live strong within us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.